You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. Censorship itself draws people toward the information. When we know we can't know something, then we really want to know it. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. Mark Twain wrote, There is a charm about the forbidden that makes it unspeakably desirable. Nothing piques our curiosity like being told we can't know something. It's the forbidden fruit effect. So what happens with curiosity in the face of real denial like hardcore information censorship? And what influence, if any, have new media and Internet-based information sharing channels had on government censorship capabilities. How susceptible are we? Should we be worried? Here at an independent media organization, the air is thick with such questions, especially now. My younger son spent last year as a Schwarzman Scholar at Tsinghua University in Beijing. Of the many impressive speakers he had in that remarkable year, the one he wrote home about, the one he insisted I interview, was Molly Roberts. Molly is a professor of political science at University of California, San Diego. Her research interest lies in the intersection of political methodology and the politics of information, with a specific focus on methods of automated content analysis and the politics of censorship in China. Her book, Censored, Distraction and Diversion Inside China's Great Firewall, was one of foreign affairs picks for the best book in 2018, and co-winner of the 2019 Goldsmith Book Prize for Academic Books at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Obviously, a timely and important book. And 2019 is the 70th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. Even as they mark the milestone, China's worst nightmare is unfolding in Hong Kong with massive protests demanding democratic freedoms and fueled by a savvy use of social media. The curtailing of curiosity in China is real and concerted. From here in the United States, it's hard for us to understand what those events look and feel like to someone in China. We believe that unlike the Chinese, we live in a land without that kind of authoritarian control and censorship. Well, maybe yes, maybe no, but how does it work? Does it work? And how might one choose to be curious anyhow? Joining me by telephone from San Diego very early in the morning is Molly Roberts. So welcome, Molly. Hi, Lynn. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's really a pleasure. So sometimes I like to ask my guests when they first knew when they were curious. But I think I want to start with you about when did you first know you were interested in censorship? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So I actually came to study censorship rather by accident. I had always been interested in China. Um, I had spent a fair amount of time in China as an undergraduate. I had taken a lot of Chinese language classes. And I'd always really been interested in statistics. Um, That was another thing I I spent a lot of time studying as an undergraduate. And so when I went to graduate school, I started working on using um, social media posts from China to try to measure public opinion. Hmm. 
And when I was looking at those social media posts, and we would go back to the URL sometimes. We had the, the URL of the social media post, and then we had the text of the post itself. And we had, you know, hundreds of thousands of these. And we would go back to the URL sometimes to see if there was a picture with a post or something. And every once in a while, that URL would go to an error page. And we realized that what was happening was we, were, we had come across a censored post. So we would go back to the URL, and we'd have the text of the original post, but then it, it would be missing. And so what we realized is that we could actually study censorship, that we were getting to the posts faster than the, the censors. Oh, how interesting. And, um, yeah. And so we, autom- we wrote this script to automatically go back to all of these URLs and measure which ones are now missing. And then we kind of tried to reverse engineer censorship, try to figure out what were the things that were missing versus what were the things that stayed. And that's how I started studying it. And at first it was studying what what was censored, and then it became studying what impact does it have. So define censorship. I mean, what did, what were you actually seeing, and, and how do you define that term? Or did that evolve? It really, yeah, it did evolve. It's a very difficult term to define. I think that a lot of people, when they think about censorship, they think about complete inability to access information. Mm -hmm. So they think, you know, that that if something is censored, you just can't ever access it. But actually, in the current sort of information age where everyone has so much access to information, censorship can be whenever the, you know, government censorship can be when the government even just puts small amounts of cost on information. So let's take these blog posts as an example that we were studying. They were online for a certain amount of time. We could get them. But you, if you wanted to read them, you'd have to be very, very fast. So what we discovered was that the government was taking these down usually within 24 hours. So it, may, it makes it slightly more costly for people to access it. Um, and they may not run across it because they maybe weren't online for that 24 hours or or maybe just didn't run, run across it in their newsfeed. So, so I think in the information age in particular, there's, uh, I would define censorship as any cost that the government imposes on access or spreading of information. So let me ask, because you use these automated content analyses. Is that how governments identify posts for censorship, or are they doing something else, or yes and? Um, yes, and I think mm-hmm. um, so. It, it's changing and it's evolving. So uh, we, I've always been really interested in statistics and machine learning. And so what we were doing was looking at what are the topics or the words or the combination of words that predict censorship. But you can also see how these tools can be used to identify posts to be censored. And so we think that when we originally started studying censorship, we were looking at data in 2011. We think most of these posts were actually looked at by hand. So there was some keyword wow. filtering they would search, and then a lot of them would be done by hand. But now I think the censorship systems become a little bit more sophisticated. And then we see, sometimes we see censorship now where if somebody uh, sends a, a post to someone else in a, in a chat or something, it can be even intercepted before it gets there because of automated methods. Hmm. Um, so those aren't necessarily very good, but they do happen. And, and when I see this 
you know, machine censorship is something that's certainly going to be increasing. Um, and then obviously much faster. I mean, presumably machines can go through this stuff at orders of magnitude faster than people going through it, even Definitely. if you have a, even if you have a lot of people working on it. Definitely, yeah. So that would be much faster and, and much more difficult for people to to figure out what's going on. Right, right. So for your purposes and their purposes, I guess what what goes into these automated content analyses? I mean, tell me tell me what that means and how it works. So mostly, what we use it for is to understand. So for for example, if we have hundreds of thousands, millions of social media posts. You can't read all of those as a researcher. And so um, what we use it for is to try to um, quantify the words. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we have a statistical model that models how those words are generated. There's a very rough model of how the words are generated. And then we can learn the topics that we're most likely to generate those words using that model. And then it becomes a much more tractable problem. So if we want to understand what the Chinese government is censoring, we can look at, say, the topics that are more likely to be included in the censored post versus the uncensored post. Right, right. And then that gives us an idea of where the things that the government is removing from the web. So you also talked about there's sort of two forms that the censorship can take. I mean, there's censorship and expression, but also censorship in access. Talk more about those forms and and kind of what they look like and how they play out. I think this is this to me was really interesting in your in your writings. Oh, thanks. It's interesting because they they feed back on each other, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. censorship of access really means anything that puts a cost on what you can access. So uh, I think the famous famously in China, the form of censorship that people think about is the Great Firewall. So the Great Firewall block certain websites from Chinese IP addresses. So if you're in China, you can't get access to things like Google, Facebook, Twitter, the Wall Street Journal, et cetera. There's a very, very long list of websites that you can't get access to. And that means it it actually can be circumvented so you can get around it. It's actually harder and harder to do so. But especially in the uh, the last like 10 years, there have been moments where you can get around it quite easily. And This means, though, you have to download a piece of software. You have to figure out how to get around the firewall. And that costs some money. It costs some time. It means you have to be fairly educated and you have to know how to do Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And and actually, a lot of people don't even know that the firewall exists. And so that makes it very difficult to get around it. So in terms of access, this means you have to spend a little bit more time. You have to spend a little bit more money to get access to information. In terms of spreading information, this has then a feedback effect on the types of information that you spread. So what you access necessarily drives what you share with others. And certainly friction, which is what I call small cost of access, is makes it more difficult to, to share that information as well. If you don't access it, it's much more difficult to share it. Of course, there are other costs that people can have besides just uh, logistical costs. So there's also what we call fear. So this is also something that's very real in China, where um, you know there's if you share a social media post that the government decides is a rumor, and it gets shared a lot of times, this can have some serious consequences for you. So there are both 
terms of cost, in terms of punishment, and cost in terms mm-hmm. of time and money mm-hmm. that censorship imposes on on people. So what's interesting about that is that in some cases, the censorship relies on people being aware that it's going on. And in some cases, it doesn't really matter whether people are aware that it's going on. I mean, the sort of deterrent requires an awareness and a, and a, and a fear, you know, a genuine threat that feels credible. Mm-hmm. Friction, people don't necessarily need to know it's there. As you say, people don't even know necessarily that the Great Firewall is in place. And one of the things that you write about is that these really small differences, just a little extra friction, makes a really big difference in terms of people's willingness to exert that energy to get to information. And it occurs to me, and I think China has versions of these, even if they're not allowed to have the versions that we have of of Twitter and Facebook, where those are especially powerful in this dynamic, right? Because they're basically friction-free. You know, stuff just gets fed right into our bloodstreams. We're just hooked up by an IV to that stuff. So (laughs) information there has very little friction. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So those social media websites, so the ones inside China, so is it called, you know, Weibo, WeChat, these are not affected by the firewall and that you can access Mm -hmm. them. They have friction in the sense of they are required by the government to remove posts at the direction of the censors. Uh-huh. So, you know, if you post something and it's like off limits, then you'll get this, uh, your post might be removed. But you're right in the sense that if the, the censors, there's a delay in that, right? So it takes about 24 hours for them to, to remove it. And so in that sense, a lot of people have usually seen these posts before they're removed. And so there's less friction than, say, on Facebook or Twitter, which are more are much more difficult to access from China. Right. I think what you get to with awareness is really central to understanding both the logic of government censorship and also how it affects people. Mm. So awareness is this double-edged sword for the government. So you can imagine the societies where awareness of censorship is is everything. So you might think of North Korea um, or awareness of how the government controlling propaganda and information is, is something that's pervasive. The problem with awareness for authoritarian regimes, especially for ones that are really integrated into the world, like China, is that it's very difficult to enforce all of your censorship regulations on everyone. Mm. And because of that, awareness can backfire. Mm-hmm. And so what happens, what we find in the data in China is that when your sort of average internet user becomes aware of censorship, it can have what we call a strike-in effect, or you call them a forbidden fruit effect, uh-huh. <laughs> which, is, uh, which is that it can draw people toward that information. So this is famously comes from Barbara Streisand, was angry that her, there were pictures of her mansion on a website of um, that included pictures of all of the California coast. And so she filed a lawsuit. And then everybody went and looked at pictures. <laughs> and everybody wanted to see the pictures. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And there are many cases of this documented around the world where censorship itself draws people toward the information. Yeah. Um, and, and that's I, I love the Mark Twain quote at the beginning. Is just, I think that's absolutely right. That's what we, when we know we can't know something, then we really want to know it. 
And so in some sense, if, if there's less awareness that can be better for a government strategy because the government strategy of censorship, because then people don't know that they don't know, and that doesn't then draw them to information. And so how this plays out in politics is that you know, one of the biggest findings in political science is that people, for the most part, aren't that interested in learning about politics, is that most people have other things to do with their time. Uh-huh. Um, they don't find that they can have a really big impact. Even in democracies, people vote, but they don't feel like their vote really has that big of an impact individually. And so they don't spend a whole lot of time reading about politics. And because of that, little cost of information, especially when they're not aware that they're related to censorship, can have a really big impact on what people see. So, for example, if you slow down a website and it's political or, you know, that can have a really big impact on how many people access it, especially if they don't really know that the slowing down of it is related to censorship. And that means that politics in particular is really affected by these frictions. Mm. And we see more and more of these governments around the world trying to adopt these kind of very subtle frictions to sort of guide people around the internet without actually (laughs) without making it clear that's what they're doing. Right. And I thought you I mean, you described that dynamic of people just not being interested and 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 then it's sort of a cost benefit analysis which you describe as as citizens being rationally ignorant, which I thought is actually a really one, just kind of an elegant turn of phrase. But but two, I stopped dead in my tracks when I when I read that because I thought that's really interesting in terms of making it clear that whether we're conscious of it or not, we're making choices about the kind of information we bother to acquire and the costs yeah. and energy we will expend in doing that. And that in some cases, people are sort of willfully ignorant. But this this sort of rationally ignorant is particularly tricky, it seems to me, in the third category of censorship that you identify around flooding and <laughs> and our susceptibility then to just having – lots of distraction coming at us. So talk about how you see that playing out. Because I'm I'm not sure that everybody would necessarily put that in the censorship bucket, but I think in the way that you conceive of censorship, it's very appropriately there. Yeah, so this is something I I also struggled with for a long time. We can't flood in the censorship. And so what flooding is in in the conception of the book is that more and more what we see around the world is that authoritarian regimes, and actually people in any group in politics um, are coordinating information online. So we see um, that people, that these regimes are getting together large amounts of individuals or using bots to put lots and lots of information on the web mm-hmm. and concentrated on certain topics and certain time periods. Most famously is probably on the 2016 uh, Russia effort in the, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And uh, China is no exception. China has long had this, is long rumored to have this 50 cent party where people are paid 50 cents to put something online. And we uh, studied this actually 
in we we studied this right before the 2016 election, and, and we published this paper about this coordinated effort to put things online in China during time, very sensitive time periods. Mm. And the idea, when we when we realized was what the strategy was, is during sensitive time periods, it wasn't to address people's criticism online. It was just to distract from ongoing events. So put millions of posts online um, during time periods that are really sensitive to make it more difficult to sort of find that information that might be related to the thing that the government didn't want people to see. Right. And flooding is really effective because it manipulates news feeds and search engines. So if you have a coordinated effort to put lots and lots of information online, and all of a sudden it looks like everybody's doing this, and news feeds and search engines kind of put this at the top of trending topics or, or you know, things that, that you should really see. And it's difficult for them to determine whether or not these are, you know, malicious or, or true true interest. And because of it, it acts like friction. So it, it puts costs on the things that aren't the coordinated information. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started really thinking about it as censorship. Um, it was this, um, if, if you are told not, if you, if you are told not to say something and you can't give a speech, um, it's actually no, it's equivalent to if you go give to the speech and somebody puts this really loud boombox <laughs> and drowns you out. Right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and so those are equivalent sometimes. And and so I, I started thinking about it as censorship. And I think the other reason why you see this to be pretty effective in, in the age of information is you see that a lot of this, these flooding efforts, put, they, they mix a lot of things that are, really draw people towards them. Mm. Um, so a lot of times they're full of entertainment or full of sort of sensational information that makes them very attractive in comparison to kind of your dry political content. Mm-hmm. So in the in the world in which people don't find politics that interesting, you know, finding something that that draws them towards them is they can be very susceptible to that, yeah. especially if they don't really realize that it's coming from you know, a coordinated actor. Right, right. I found that really interesting. You're kind of the, this whole idea that porous censorship doesn't have to be absolute. It can be very, very effective. I think that's actually a really interesting insight. So so do you have any recommendations on curiosity practices that one might use in the face of likely censorship? I mean, presumably we're all susceptible in some places to some of these various forms. What's a what's a good curiosity practice in the face of that? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question. And and I think part of me, I mean, I thought about, while I was studying this, I kind of thought about my own information practices, right? Mm-hmm. You know, who do I let prioritize information for me? Is it Facebook? Is it Google News? Is it the New York Times? You know? And so what I started doing, and maybe this is very related, maybe to curiosity, is, you know, I started trying to have a lot of different sources of prioritization. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So to make sure that I was getting media or information about politics, information about what was going on in the world with what I saw were sort of, you know, different sources, not just my friends, not just, you know, one news outlet, um, but a lot of different ones. But it's really difficult 
in some sense, to do that because uh, we have sort of this grouping of information, right, on, on, on the Internet. And so I think sort of thinking about where the independent sources of information are is really useful. And I know that a lot of people that I interviewed in China or I know from China who are, who are very aware of censorship also think about what, you know, other, what are the, you know, what are the variety of sources of information that they can get their information from. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Good advice. Good advice. Thank you for that. Before you go, I don't actually have my big jar of wannabe analogies with me, but I did pull out some slips of paper. Are you up for an analogy to curiosity here? I have a analogy to curiosity. Okay, okay. So I have these slips of paper with random words written on them, and I've drawn out, I brought three of them with me, and we're each going to make an analogy to curiosity with one of these. So yours is coin. How is curiosity like coin or coins? And um, all right, and I have mine. Mine is step stool. So let's see, step stool. Um, curiosity is like a step stool. Um, because it helps us get a slightly different perspective on things. We can kind of step up above something a little bit, maybe look at it differently. But it also helps us reach towards things that might not otherwise be immediately accessible. So that's what I'll say about curiosity in this episode. So how is curiosity like coins? Um, curiosity is like coins because... It keeps us flipping the coin to see where it will end. <laughs> I like it. I like it. It's a lot. There's a lot of chance in there. Spoken <laughs> spoken as a true statistician. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. Um, and for our audience, uh, yours is hands. How is curiosity like hands? Let me know. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Well, Molly, thank you so much for this, especially for doing it early in the morning and by phone. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. Where, by the way, you can always make a donation to support the wonderfulness that is Arlington Independent Media. Conversations like this one remind us how important free and independent communications and media are in this day and age. That's WERA.FM. Your donations are, of course, tax-deductible and very much appreciated. You can hear all my previous episodes on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, MixCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious, and on my website at ChooseToBeCurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on Twitter at Choose Number 2, letter B, Curious. Don't forget to send us your hands analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Molly Roberts, links to her work on my website, and thanks to Seth for putting Molly and her work on my radar in the first place. And if you know someone you think would be an interesting guest on Choose to be Curious or just have a topic you think would make for a rich curiosity conversation, drop me a line at choosetobecurious at gmail.com. Thanks to Sean Ballack for our theme music, Hammer and Damper by Blue Nocturnal by way of Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join me again next time, and until then, choose to be curious.
Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter.